0: This is Loudspeaker. Please don't go, I need
1: you, so I Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. I'm your host, Adrienne VanderValk, and if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you know that I often ask my guests to talk about the major feminist milestones in their lives. But for my guest today, that question was basically impossible to ask in that way because her whole life has been pretty much a collection of feminist milestones. And some of those milestones have literally shaped the feminist movement as we know it today. She's an activist, author, university professor, and public intellectual. She has worked to combat sexual violence, investigate violent extremism, promote human rights all over the world, and she is one of the co-creators of the Reproductive Justice Framework, as well as a leader in the reproductive justice movement. She is a multi-award-winning thought leader who embodies Black feminist praxis in all that she does because she is a living pioneer of Black feminist thought. She's currently finishing up a book called Calling In the Call-Out Culture, which is how she and I first got connected when I saw her speak on this subject a few years ago. I really can't do her justice without making this introduction way too long, and trust me, you would rather listen to her than me anyway, because in addition to being an icon, she is also hilarious and delightful, and it was such an honor to have her on the show. Please enjoy my conversation with Loretta J. Ross many people know you as one of the co-creators of the reproductive justice framework and i know that's not necessarily the focus of our interview today i really want to talk about some of your the work that you're doing more recently. But I don't think I didn't think I could pass up the opportunity to have Loretta Ross uh, explain reproductive justice or talk about that. So do you mind just telling us in your own experience about what that framework means to you and and how the co-creation of the reproductive justice framework happened?
0: Well, in 1994, I was lucky enough to be part of a group of 12 Black women attending a conference hosted by the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance and the Ms. Foundation. And at this conference, we heard about the Clinton administration, because President Clinton was president, attempt to do health care reform. And somehow the Clinton administration had got it in its head that if they omitted most references to reproductive health care in their bill, that somehow the Republicans wouldn't object to it. And of course, when we 12 black women heard this strategy, we thought they'd lost their minds because reproductive health care is the main driver of women to the doctor. It really didn't make sense to us. So that night after we'd heard this presentation by the administration representative, we were mulling it over in one of our hotel rooms. I was told it was the hotel room of Abel Mabel Thomas, but I don't remember that detail, but I'm sure whoever said that was right. And we spliced together the concept of reproductive rights and social justice, because another frustration we had was the severance of abortion from all the social justice issues that these decisions are actually embedded in. I mean, if a person misses her period, she's worried about whether she can keep her job, whether she can stay in school, whether she's gonna experience violence from her partner, I mean, all of those, oh my God, moments are really social justice issues because you should have the opportunity to maintain a pregnancy and stay in school or be employed or not experience violence or even have a bedroom to put a child in. But those human rights issues aren't necessarily considered in the pro-life, pro-choice abortion debate. And so when we splice together reproductive rights with social justice, We coined the term reproductive justice as a way of describing what happened when we as Black women put ourselves in the center of the lens. And what did we need from our activism using Black feminist theory? And then we went on to define it as resting primarily on three pillars, which is that we join with the pro-choice movement, and fighting for the right not to have a child. And that, of course, means supporting the right to abortion and birth control and abstinence, if you can hold on. I mean, some people say it works. I'm I'm no testament to that, but anyway. But we also join in many ways with the pro-life movement in fighting for our right to have the children that we want to have and under the conditions under which we want to have them. And so that means dealing with doulas or midwives, or having hospitals respect our birthing plans or stop foisting onto us unnecessary cesarean sections that aren't medica- medically necessary. And then the third pillar is the right to raise our children in safe and healthy environments because neither the pro-choice or the pro-life movement pay sufficient attention to what happens once the child is born. And so that brings us into conversation with things like gun control, immigration and racist violence, decent housing, affordable healthcare, quality schools, and education. I mean, every field of human endeavor really has an impact on how children thrive in our society. And so those were the first three tenets, not to have a child, to have a child, and to raise our kids and then a younger generation of reproductive justice activists have added a fourth tenet which is the right to bodily autonomy to decide one's gender identity and the right to sexual pleasure which is actually implicit in the first three as human rights as well but i do like their articulation of a fourth premise for a lot of people who don't define themselves as cis women finding their space to articulate what reproductive justice means for them, in addition to all the other things that I've already talked about. This happened in 1994, and much to our surprise, it has moved from the margins to the mainstream, that now more people are framing reproductive politics using the reproductive justice framework. And I'm convinced because of its elasticity and its capacity for really speaking to how people all people make their reproductive decisions which not just simply based on whether one is pregnant or not but whether one wants to become a parent and how do you want that decision to proceed and what are the other factors that influence that decision so this concept that started out on the radical wing of the black feminist movement has ended up not only being mainstream in America, but I think it's traveled transnationally because a lot of women in other countries and people in other countries are using reproductive justice in astonishing ways because I'd never thought when we created it that it had any real significance beyond the U.S. But because it's a human rights-based framework, other people looking for broader ways to define their situation in terms of reproductive politics are finding it very useful to use it, too, as an expression of human rights.
1: Right now, I'm looking for inspiration where I can find it. And the story of, you know, as you describe, an idea that was birthed in this radical movement being now something that people really recognize on the mainstream and that is widely used is, I I do think that's tremendously inspiring. And I am seeing that happen in other areas of social justice right now as well, which I think um, is, has partly been propelled forward by, by the pandemic. And so I do, I do want to ask you about what life has been like for you the last, since I guess, March when everything started to shut down and How has the pandemic influenced you as a person, as an activist, as, as a thinker and a scholar? Have there been any kind of revelations for you during this
0: time? Well, since I'm a college professor at Smith College, Smith was very wise and they shut down very early in March and switched us all to remote learning because they wanted to really prioritize the safety of the students. And so I've been teaching online since March from the safety of my home, which feels very wonderful because unlike a lot of people who are really suffering during this pandemic, I wasn't threatened with loss of job or loss of housing or any of those things. So relative to a lot of people for whom the pandemic, has just been awful. I really can't complain about its impacts on me. And because i 'm a senior citizen, I also have to be especially careful in not exposing myself to the risk of contacting disease and so I never go out of my house uh, well, except for going to the grocery store and to the doctor. I limit all of my outside contacts with the world and so it has provided a lot more space to think and write and learn how to teach online. I also started two online courses, in addition to what I teach for Smith. One is called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump, building on my earlier anti-fascist work with the Center for Democratic Renewal, National Anti-Clan Network, and then calling in the calling out culture, which is the title of my latest book. And so, I found that I love teaching online. I love teaching in that virtual space, even though it's a lot more labor intensive than teaching in person, because you have to do a much higher degree of preparation in order to engage a virtual audience than you do in person. When you have, you know, in person, you have the advantage of your body, your voice, your ability to read the room and get people's expressions and have a whole lot of other activities where when you teach virtually, you have to really put a lot more energy into a screen and keep people engaged and use many different modalities as well as the content of what you're dealing with. So there are some differences. Now, personally, I did have some issues. My sister died in March. Fortunately, it was not from COVID. If there is a good story, she'd been suffering from breast cancer for a number of years. And so she died early in March. And that was a body blow because not only did I lose my favorite big sister, but it was our first experience at a virtual funeral. We weren't allowed to go bury her because of COVID. And then I have another sister who's in a nursing home who has been tested positive and we have not been allowed to go see her because the nursing home is not allowing any visitors and so it has that personal impact on me in terms of not being able to touch and get in in touch with and, and see family. That is very isolating.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. And I definitely can relate to the feeling of being isolated from family. That really has been, you know, one of the hardest things um, for a lot of the folks that I've talked to. I've, I've spent a lot of the podcast episodes over the last few months just talking about the effect of the pandemic and what that has meant personally and professionally. And, you know, it just it's just really changed everything. So thank you for sharing that with me. I do want to shift back to talking about your work. And it is hard to figure out where to begin because there's so much to talk about in the world right now. And also you've done such incredibly deep work in so many different areas besides just reproductive justice. You, as you mentioned, your anti-hate work, you've worked to combat violence against women. You've worked to promote the voices of Black women and other women of color in the feminist movement and in healthcare. And now you're working on the book about call-out culture. So, uh, you know, the last few months has, as I said, brought almost every one of these topics into the cultural spotlight on kind of a massive scale. And so I'm just wondering if you want to talk at all about what that has felt like for you as someone who has really helped shape the conversations about many of these issues over the years and some of your reflections on watching them once again, sort of find, find themselves in the spotlight, I guess.
0: Well, I think that there's a particular way the universe works, that it prepares you for the times that you're in and the moment that you're needed. And so I had a lot of traumatic things happen to me as a child and that prepared me to get into the women's movement when I was 16 years old. Cause you know, back in the sixties, It was just not that many options for a poor black girl from Texas who was a teen mother through incest. And I was lucky enough to get into the women's movement and then do civil rights work and then human rights work. And so it feels like I've been prepared for these moments that I'm in through life's footsteps leading me in the directions that I needed to be led. About five years ago, I saw the storm clouds of neo-fascism coming back. And at the time, I was considerably worried about that. I got an offer to start a teaching career at Hampshire College. And so I started this course called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump, just offering to share with a younger generation what I had learned doing monitoring of hate groups and things like that through a Black feminist lens. So five years later, here I am still doing that. And very fortunate that there are colleges and universities that don't run away from teaching these hard subjects and having these difficult conversations with students. They see it as part of their obligation to offer students this radical education about how the world really works and not the pablum of liberalism that many other colleges are offering. And then also about five years ago, I finally got on social media. And that was due to the urging of my grandson. My grandson would never answer the phone when I called him, but I could reach him through social media. So he got me on Facebook. He was then you know, maybe a teenager himself, about 15 or 16 years old. So I got on Facebook. And of course, the minute I got on Facebook, he migrated off of it into Snapchat or IG or wherever else young people go nowadays. He's probably on TikTok now, I don't know. But I stayed on Facebook and one of the things I noticed was how vicious people were towards each other through social media. Something that had really flown beneath my radar because I do community organizing, face-to-face organizing, and lecturing at colleges. So I had not noticed what a force social media had become in conveying such viciousness. People felt free behind the cloak of anonymity to say awful things to each other that I doubt they would have the courage to say face to face in person. And so I asked this young woman I was doing reproductive justice organizing, Marissa Graciosa, I believe was her name, Is this, was this normal? I said, why are people so mean on social media? And I described to her what I was experiencing. she said, oh, the call-out culture? I said, y'all have named it? She said, oh, yeah, it's called calling out. I said, well, what are y'all doing about it? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders like, I don't know. And that caused me to think about all the experiences i would had over the last 45 years at that time, dealing with leftists who called each other out all the time, around sectarian stuff, who was most Marxist, who was most this, who was most politically correct. And we had a word when I was a Black student, a young Black student at Howard University, called relevant, (laughs) and we used to say, you're not relevant. (laughs) It's just the most dismissive thing you could say to someone, except maybe accuse them of being manipulated by COINTELPRO, which was also one of the things that I had experienced, where a lot of the left, in particular the Black activist community, had all these infiltrators that were using call-out tactics and gossip and stuff to destroy our unity to weaken us. And then I had the experience of working in the civil rights movement. Reverend C.T. Vivian was one of the co-founders of the Center for Democratic Renewal. And he used to talk to me about how the leaders of the civil rights movement had their quarrels and fights, but they were able to present a united front when it was necessary to go up against white supremacy. And then of course, in the women's movement, Being an early Black feminist, I knew that most of the women I worked with, they weren't enemies. They were problematic allies at worst. And so we always had to find a way as Black feminists to work within the women's movement and still not necessarily get into all of the call-out culture when we knew we needed to unite to defend abortion rights or defend you know, working for a living wage and all the campaigns we had to fight against the patriarchy and sexism. So it occurred to me after I started processing all I'd been through that I wanted to offer something called calling in instead of calling out to the activist community, curating the lessons that I would learned in my 45 years as an activist and offering them to this new generation. Now, of course, every generation has the right to determine a struggle on their own terms. We're not supposed to be the backseat drivers from previous generations. But at the same time, I am concerned that we can't build a successful and united human rights movement if we're spending our best weapons on each other, particularly in light of the threat to democracy that we're facing with this neo-fascist movement. It's almost as if we're rearranging the deck chairs while the Titanic is sinking.
1: I'd love to talk to you more about the book, if we can dig into that a little bit. Do you draw, first of all, do you draw a distinction between call-out culture and cancel culture? Because that's a question that I've gotten before.
0: Well, I think cancel culture is an extreme form of call-out culture. Call-out culture is when you want to call attention to something that you think people are doing wrong, whether they believe the wrong things, say the wrong things, wear the wrong things, whatever. And then if you take it a step further, you're asking for them to be dismissed for them doing the wrong thing, either dismissed from their jobs, canceled from their television show or canceled from the movement, whatever, however you define that, but they're along the same continuum. Frankly, I think all calling out and calling in exists along a large continuum. When I talk about calling in, I'm actually using the tools of calling out, but I'm just saying that we need to do it with love. Instead of shaming people and doing it through anger, we can call attention to people's missteps if we want to, but we, if we do it with love, we offer them a chance to be held accountable. We offer them a chance to seek and perhaps receive forgiveness and to correct their actions so that they don't do it again. But when you do just plain old call-outs with anger and punishment and shame and humiliation, you actually are driving people away. Why would anybody want to confess that they've done something wrong if they're gonna be so severely punished for it in such a publicly flaying way. So it actually decreases the chances of accountability rather than increases the chances of accountability. And so it's producing the opposite reaction that I think we want, which is a chance to point out that something has gone wrong, identify the harm, seek remedy for the harm, and seek prevention of future harm and you can't do that through a vicious call out culture cuz all people do is double down cuz they they go beyond attacking what they said to their moral character when you have done the call out on them. And so it's the most non productive way i think of seeking accountability. Now there are some instances where i think calling out works. Obviously if the black lives matter movement had not been aggressively calling out police violence, we wouldn't have the summer of 2020 and the attention paid to the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Certainly, Colin Kaepernick just taking a knee five years ago didn't get the attention of the NFL except to get him blacklisted from ever playing football again. But coupled with the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, leaders, they did a great job and calling attention to the murder of Trayvon Martin, and then Eric Garner, and on and on, and Sandra Bland. And so we're now looking at a very transformative moment in our society of whether or not the United States is going to embrace a democracy that is inclusive or an authoritarian system that is exclusive. And so they very carefully and and accurately used the call-out mechanisms of punishment and shame call attention to the fact that so many unpunished murders of black people and trans people are going on in our society, and this is considered business as usual, that the routine nature of it is what is as equally horrifying as the fact that people are getting killed. And so now we've got the NFL putting Black Lives Matter on football fields after totally running from it five years ago. So calling out is useful for when you want to bring powerful corporations to attention, when you want to bring institutions like the police force and their, their abusive people to attention. is very useful for that because the power disparities are so large that it really does take a public shaming and a public demand for accountability to produce change. But most call outs aren't done in terms of punching up. Most calls are done punching horizontally. So people with equal power who use the wrong word or the wrong gender pronoun or aren't as woke as you think they should be. And then there's a lot of calling out that's, I call it virtue signaling, where people are trying to prove how woke they are. And so they pounce on someone else and literally have no respect for whether they're blowing up somebody's life there's a sadistic quality about it, too, that I'm writing my book about, how it's overused and misused, and people in pain don't really care about how much pain they cause to others. And so I think a lot of call-out is driven by unhealed trauma, and that is not a good way to heal trauma. matter of fact, it doesn't work either. And I think that there's something really sad about people whose only sense of community is online. That means that they don't really have a good circle of healing and supportive folks around them in real life. And that's why people get radicalized online and why they're forming community with strangers who are not accountable to them and they don't have to be accountable to.
1: Yeah, I thank you for articulating it that way that I had not really thought about it in terms of expression of trauma. That's that's kind of a, a new way of thinking about it to, to me, that people who have been hurt do have the impulse to hurt. And if you're behind a keyboard, it's a whole lot easier than, you know, to in person. In the New York Times, you wrote about having gotten called out yourself at different points in your career. What was that like for you and how did you move past it? And have you ever gotten called out for calling out, call out culture? That was another question that I had.
0: Well, first of all, I've been called out many, many times in my career. The larger your, your, your visibility, the larger your mistakes, and then the, the more people who want to call them out for you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, my worst mistakes have ended up in the Washington Post. So, yes, I've been called out quite a bit. And whether you're called out or whether you're called in, you're going to have the same emotional reactions. You're going to feel defensive. You're going to feel like someone is shaming you. You freeze like a deer in headlights, headlight and you're deciding whether to fight or flight or freeze. I mean, you're not going to necessarily feel warm and fuzzy about it. You're going to feel like, oops, not only have I made a mistake, but someone's calling attention to it. Or you're going to be angry and deny that you've made a mistake and strike out at that person for making you feel bad it doesn't really matter whether you're being called in or called out. you are going to have those same emotional reactions. And so learning calling in practices is about first pausing, taking a deep breath, really examining what your body may feel is a threat, but it's maybe someone actually taking time to invest in you. You have to learn how to do an accurate threat assessment, whether or not the person is doing it because they want to harm you or they want to hurt you. Even though you have the feeling of being harmed, that your feelings aren't necessarily true. You have to be able to separate whether you're being triggered by a past harm and really place yourself in present time. And so you can pause and take a deep breath. You can ask for clarifying information. You can, if what they say is true of you, then you can, ask for forgiveness, you can make an apology. But one thing I do know is that people who are determined to call out and determined to wrap their victimhood around themselves as a shield, no amount of apology will make a difference, no matter how exquisitely you put it and how sincerely you mean it. They don't want to forgive you. They don't want to move past their trauma and their hurt because that's all they know. And so offering an apology and offering forgiveness is how you reclaim your soul because you're not really responsible and you can't be responsible for how someone else reacts to a gift that you offer them. And so that's also about calling in when you are attempting to call someone in and say in the gentlest way you can. You know, when you use that word, I wonder what you meant by that because... I don't think it landed the way you meant it to land. Do you mind if we go, go out and have coffee to talk about this? That's as gentle, gently as you can call someone in. And yet they may not be in a space ready to accept that offering. And so you can only take responsibility for making the offering. Not, you don't have that magical power to control how other people respond to an offering. And so you have to let that go because you can't control another person. But you can really guard your own integrity by really evaluating whether someone should have called you in and what you've done to put yourself in a place to be called in. And if they are pointing out something that you really need to correct, or are they in fact inflicting their trauma on you and, and you have nothing that you need to correct or be accountable for, you never know in these situations, And so that's why I say you have to pause, take that deep breath, acknowledge what's going on. If you have caused harm, or even if you haven't, offering a simple apology costs you nothing. Because even if you didn't intend harm, if someone says they were harmed, how does it hurt you to offer an apology for that? It's like accidentally stepping on somebody's foot. You didn't mean to do it, but you're grown enough to apologize for it, not to deny that you did it. (laughs) Learning calling in techniques is a testament to your ability to grow, your ability to be accountable to your own integrity, and uh, your ability to match your inside opinion of yourself with your outside behavior. Because many of us think we're much better people than we actually behave like. (laughs) And, you know, so there's a chance for you to align your inner good opinion of yourself with the way you actually land in the outside world. And so it's about letting go of grudges, learning how to forgive, learning how to grow up, learning how to be less sensitive, less triggered by other people, move forward, protecting our integrity, trying not to cause harm, and then being patient with ourselves and forgiving of ourselves and others if we inadvertently cause harm. I mean, I'm not saying we should not be held accountable for harm, whether it's intentional or not. But someone who accidentally steps on my foot is going to get a different reaction from someone who did it on purpose. It's a whole process, and it doesn't happen overnight. Trust me, it ain't easy. I'm tempted to call people out a dozen times a day, and yet I have to stop myself from that quick twitch of responding to everything on social media that gets on my nerves.
1: I want to read a quote from the piece that you wrote for the New York Times on call-out culture. You said, I believe, hashtag me too, survivors can be, can more effectively address sexual abuse without resorting to the punishment and exile that mirror the prison industrial complex. And I was, I was struck by that quote. It brought to mind that you know, for me right now, I'm seeing a lot more conversations about moving away from carceral feminism toward abolitionist feminism. And I wonder if you want to talk about that for a minute, because it, it seems like these are in some ways related issues, right, in terms of how we respond to behavior that we don't like and, and the way that we demand accountability. And I'm and just wonder if you want to comment on that or how you've seen the conversation about Carl Searle versus abolitionist feminism changed over time?
0: Well, first, I have to probably start with my own story, because I'm, of course, a rape survivor, an incest survivor, and a sterilization abuse survivor. So I've had enough trauma to get into the oppression Olympics with anybody else. And probably win hand down if I really wanted to stay in that space. But I also think that we live in such a patriarchal uh, society that victims of sexual violence are not believed and the perpetrators of it are not held accountable. So I totally believe in the right of people who have survived sexual violence to tell their story and to seek accountability. The question becomes, can we actually get it from the prison industrial complex And back in the 1970s, when I became the third executive director of the DC Rape Crisis Center, which was the first rape crisis center in the country, we as Black women who were running that center didn't believe that the police were going to believe us, that they were actually going to help Black survivors of sexual violence without further victimizing the Black community, because this is what they do. And so since the beginning of the anti-rape movement in 1972, black women have always had held a strong critique of whether or not calling the police to address interracial sexual violence in our community was going to work. We knew it wasn't. And particularly if you're in the middle of an immigrant community or a trans or LGBT community, we knew that the police were more likely to create more violence in our lives than lessen the violence or prevent the violence. And so we've always been critical of the myth that law enforcement is there to protect and serve for vulnerable communities. Maybe it works for other communities, but we didn't see any evidence that it was working really well for our community. At the same time, when I was at the rape crisis center though, we had a program That was started by men who were incarcerated for raping and murdering women called prisoners against rape. And it was a Black feminist educational program that we ran with Lorton Reformatory, which was DC's prison at the time in rural Virginia. And we had a lot of hesitation about whether or not we were going to respond to this request by these incarcerated Black men to work with them. Because one of them wrote us a letter and said, outside I rape women, and inside I'm raping men, and I'd rather not be a rapist anymore. And we sat on that letter for a number of months trying to figure out, wait a moment, we barely have enough resources to help the victims of male violence, and now you're asking us to help the perpetrators. I mean, it just blew our mind. But in 74, They started, the men started Prisoners Against Rape. I started working with them in 79. So they were going on for a while before I got there. And I had never been with a group of men who so passionately told their stories about being victims themselves. I mean, no one comes out the womb as a human rights violator. They're made by what they experienced in their young lives. And I never thought that I'd have any sympathy or empathy for people who violated women. And so that's when I learned that my understanding of feminism was not a matter of angels and devils. It wasn't so black and white, so rigid as I had formerly believed it was, that it had to be complicated because we were dealing with complex people, people who are capable of violating someone else's human rights even as theirs were being violated and that was the first example i had of working hard to call people in who had done some really horrible things and so when i talk about today's me too movement i'm saying okay i understand being wounded i understand being violated and i understand the lack of accountability but if we could talk to men Incarcerated men in the 70s who had done horrible things to women, why do we think that the prison industrial complex is going to help us any better today than we believe 45 years ago? It's not. Unless you're white, privileged, and rich, it's not going to work that well for you, and maybe not even then.
1: want to just go back briefly to something you were saying earlier about the intersection of gender justice and some of the anti-fascist work that you've done as well because I think this is really interesting and something that a lot of people don't necessarily connect uh, misogyny or anti-abortion perspectives and white nationalism Um, that those two things in many ways do go together and that bringing a gender justice lens to, um, to hate work is, is really important. And I wonder if you could just make that connection more explicitly and talk about the role that you see feminism or feminists having in combating this, um, the visibility and the emboldenment of white nationalism and militia groups and Proud Boys and all, uh, you know, everything that we've been seeing lately.
0: My experience with that was launched when we saw the uptick of anti-abortion violence in the 80s, particularly during the election of Ronald Reagan when he was in power. And then I got the job in 1990 at the Center for Democratic Renewal. And my job then was to monitor racial and anti-Semitic violence. And I began to detect an overlap in personnel in strategies and yet the popular discourse separated anti-abortion violence from racial and anti-semitic violence when my research was showing that these are the same people these are the same tactics whether you do hit lists for abortion providers or hit lists for black mayors it is the same tactic but i was the only woman at the time who was in charge of a research department monitoring hate groups. It was very hard to convince people either in the anti-abortion movement to pay attention to racial violence, or people in the anti-hate movement to pay attention to abortion violence. And I think because uh, the people in the anti-hate movement lacked a a sufficiently sturdy gender analysis, and I think people in the pro-choice movement lacked an expansive racial analysis. And so in 1992, I started this project at CDR called Women's Watch, and it was overlaying the data we had on abortion violence with the data we had on racial and anti-Semitic and anti-immigration violence. And we put those two sets of data together. I started that in August of 1992 and six months later, the first abortion doctor was killed. So I've been working ever since then trying to bring those two opposition research movements closer together. And I think we've had some success so that now people are not separating anti-woman violence and anti-abortion violence from hate violence, that they are looking at it all as being fomented by largely the same movement because the Walls between the movements are very porous. the personnel move from one side to to the other, and we're always in a reactive posture because we don't connect the dots between their strategies, and we don't connect the dots between our movements now now since then, since the early 1990s i 'm pleased to report that a lot more women are writing books about the hate movement and about the anti-abortion movement and so in the fall of 2019 or was it 2018 i can't remember i was able to organize a retreat of close to 20 women who are now writing books on hate violence and studying the far right as well as the religious right bring them all together in a retreat for us to bring together an intersectional gender analysis with racist analysis and anti racist and an anti Semitic and anti immigration analysis. And so out of that out of that retreat, Elise Hoag wrote a book called The Lies Set Behind. She's the president of NARAL, Pro Choice America, showing now that here's the leader of a pro choice organization that's looking at the fascist tendencies that's underlying the anti abortion violence. So something that I had tried to do in 1992 has come to fruition now in 2020, that we are making those links now.
1: I've gotten a number of requests from listeners, specifically asking me to interview women who've been in in feminist practice for a long time and who can look back on decades of the movement So I would love to hear some of your reflections generally on where we are now as feminists and any lessons or thoughts that you want to share with the generations who are finding their own feminist practice and their own um, way forward within feminism in
0: 2021. Well, yeah, first of all, feminism saved my life. When I was deeply depressed because of all that had happened to me, suicidal because I didn't think my life was worth preserving and worth living, it was older Black women who took me under their wing when I was a teenager. And even though I was as mouthy and as insufferable as it was to be as a newly minted activist, they didn't give up on insufferable me. They were patient with me, even though they didn't like me because I had these baby dreads popping out all over my head. So they thought that I should do something about that hair (laughs) and stop dropping MFs all the time because that's how I was. And still am, actually. And so it saved my life. And it taught me how to be in the company of women in a way that could be about my growth, not my competition with them or all the other things about them. And we knew that not only were we against, up against a patriarchy that was deeply misogynistic, but we were up against a media narrative that tried to dismiss us too. And they've done a great job in contaminating the term feminism, making you think that we are all man haters who complain about things that we should just get over and make a lot of people com- be convinced that. Feminism is a dirty thing you don't wanna be and a a humorless thing you don't wanna be. And so we've had to spend a lot of time reclaiming our word, reclaiming our truth and, and really standing up for each other and standing up for people like Kamala Harris and others who are putting themselves out there as leaders. And so I'm really glad that I became a part of the women's movement and just for a practical reason. I mean, I joined the feminist movement and I've seen the world. I've been to sixty or seventy countries, all in pursuit of working with women around the globe. It's been just wonderful. And I think those opportunities are still there for, for new generations. And it's actually easier to get globally connected now because of the internet that didn't exist in the 70s and 80s when I was becoming, you know, much more engaged and stuff. But I also think that that the younger women have a chance to be more intersectional than we were and are less likely to be put into boxes. Like you either fight for civil rights or you fight for women's rights or you fight for the environment or you fight against for racial justice. And they're like, hey, I don't want to wear any of those boxes. I'm going to fight for it all at the same time. Thank you. And so I think there's a more justice oriented intersectional feminism that people are embracing. That obviously that if we just ended misogyny, we wouldn't get rid of neoliberal capitalism. We wouldn't get rid of white supremacy. There's a whole lot of other things, environmental destruction. I mean, there's a lot that we we still need to do. So that single issue organizing, that was the hallmark of when I was coming up as an activist, no longer applies today. So I'm actually really encouraged by what I see among young people today. And even more so, I think younger people, both men, women, trans, are embracing the F word feminism more. There was an anti feminist movement, particularly around Ronald Reagan and that whole Bush years, where people, you know, walk around saying, I'm not a feminist because they're broad burners, they're men haters, and they're this and that and that. And the media is all too happy to always write a story about the demise of feminism. But I think younger people are being drawn to the intersectional possibilities of feminism.
1: I'm glad to hear you say that. That gives me some hope, too. I feel the same way. I'm pretty much firmly in middle age. And I feel that sometimes when I'm in various feminist gatherings or or settings, you know, that I participate in. But I also feel very hopeful. And that's um, leads to my next question, which is what brings you hope right now?
0: Oh, the fight back that I see. That's so widespread. I mean, I love the kids from Parkland who bought the NRA to their knees. The kids from Standing Rock. Well, the kids and the elders from Standing Rock who brought the whole pipeline industry to the table and have won impressive lawsuits. The Me Too folks. I mean, there's just so much evidence of the resistance nowadays. And despite the fact that the media is doing its best to suppress these stories, we're we're learning about each other anyway. And we're seeing real important culture shifts because of young people. I love it. I love it. They give me hope every day. That's probably why I'm so preoccupied with writing this book about calling each other in instead of calling each other out. Because we can thwart our own successes if we become the, the political Puritans with each other. And so that's one of my concerns. But still, I love the way that activism is happening among young people today and they give me all the hope in the world. I actually do think that I could go retire on a beach somewhere if we could ever get out of COVID quarantine. <laughs> Still, but I am going to quote Gloria Steinem because she has this famous quip that I'm probably going to say badly, but she says, uh, stop asking me to pass my torch because I'm not through setting stuff on fire yet. So. Get your own torch. <laughs> I I think it's a privilege to have been raised by my mother, who was raised by her grandmother, who was born in eighteen ninety-three. So I, I was raised with very Victorian ideals of womanhood. And yet I'm also still alive here in the twenty first century where we're seeing everything around gender identity being reworked and revisited, and racial identity and everything else is up for reclamation and, and rede- redefinition. So It's a real exciting time to feel like I'm bridging the 19th century and the 21st century in my own body because of the memories I have and the ancestors whose shoulders I stand on. And the fact that I produce my, that I'll be somebody's ancestors because I've got a grandchild and great grandchildren. So. I'm able to bridge all those generations, and I love that.
1: Loretta and I recorded this conversation at a time when I was feeling really down and discouraged about the pandemic and the state of the world. And it sounds like such a cliche to say she was such an inspiration to me. But this conversation truly shifted my perspective. It helped me soften some rigidity and some anger, unhealthy anger. There's all types of anger. This was particularly unhelpful anger that had started to take hold in my thinking. And it also encouraged me to reconnect with my belief in humanity in a way that had felt distant for a long time for me. So in addition to all the beautiful and radical gifts she's given us as a feminist over the last almost 50 years. I'm really grateful to her for being vulnerable and modeling empathy and acknowledging that even though we are not where we want to be, there are so many reasons to feel hopeful. And listeners, I hope you are taking away some of those gifts as well. Loretta Ross, thank you, thank you, thank you. For those of you who might be new to Feminist Hot Dog, thank you for taking the time to listen and learn along with me. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is to give this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Follow Feminist Hot Dog on Instagram. And if you really love the show, become a supporter on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Until next time, listeners, and as always, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye.
0: This is Loudspeaker.